I'm just going to start the recording just in case we say something that's useful. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I always sort of piece together the episodes Frankenstein style a little bit. So. Very good. Welcome, listeners, to Dear Reader. I am one half of your hosting team, Michael. Hello, I'm Emily. And this is a show where we talk about the most interesting thing we've read in the last month or so, um, because reading's been a big part of our life since we became friends as teenagers, but now that we're in our 30s, it's a bit hard to sometimes define the time or the energy or the will to read. So, welcome. If this is your first episode, and if you've been with us since the start, welcome back. Sounds like you've had quite the few weeks. Yeah, everyone got pink eye. And because of the incubation period, none of us had it at the same time. Is that good or bad? I guess it's kind of good. We only had to deal with one kid at a time, but it stretched the whole thing out. And the adults got it as well? Yeah, oh yeah, we got it. <laughs> yeah, and my, uh, yeah, the grandparents got it. Everybody got it. Everyone got pink eye. Andrew had a uh, a minor procedure mm-hmm. that had a complication. It wasn't like serious, but he was off his feet for like a week. And then he got strep throat, and then we all got sick. Sounds like a great start to summer. It's been a nightmare. Well, and it wasn't summer either. It was like seven degrees and raining every day. <laughs> <laughs> so just utter misery. Well, you know what? Maybe it's good that the weather was bad when you guys were all like sick and unable to enjoy anything. Well, that could be true, because today it is 23 degrees mm. and sunny, and the lilacs and the laburnums are all blooming, so you know what that's like. Yeah. And I have a gin and tonic, and all my babies are asleep. Lovely. So, <laughs> so it's good right now. Yes. <laughs> How are you? I'm very well. Two big things happened. You helped me out with one of them. I was in New York City, and I lost my passport. <laughs> It's terrifying when that happens. I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that. No. I guess I do enough international traveling that I got kind of cavalier about it. And then I just sort of patted my pockets and was like, huh, my passport isn't here. Maybe it fell out back. And then like you get back and it's like, no, it has not fallen out. My passport is legitimately missing. I lost like an entire night of sleep like being like am i going to be stuck in new york for three weeks like yeah. what, what about my clients back home because i was sort of looking at what to do and it was like emergency passports can take 10 to 15 business days and this was like not acceptable i went to the canadian consulate in manhattan the very next morning because my husband is american he could not vouch for me and so uh, i needed to have four canadians who could be phoned and could confirm that I am who I said I was. And you were one of them, Emily, so thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. I was, like, so panicked. Because she was all like, how tall is Michael? I'm like, about six feet. <laughs> and then I realized, I told her that... I knew you for 10 years, and I was like, oh my god, no, it's actually been way longer. I was, I was so sure I'd, like, completely ruined it. <laughs> I would not be allowed back into the country because you misremembered that bit. What color are Michael's eyes? I don't know! <laughs> Everyone who I had uh, for them to phone texted me as soon as they got off the phone. And all of them were like, they asked me about your eyes. <laughs> 
I, I guess the lady at the consulate was struck by how beautiful they are. <laughs> but you know, she was great. Her name was Gracia, and she made my life so much better. Like the moment she walked in the room and started talking to me, my anxiety went from like an eight to like a three. I love people like that. Yeah, I keep thinking about sending her like a thank you card. Probably I should do that. <laughs> nice little gesture. Yeah. So I mean, I guess. Don't make it a habit, but if you do happen to lose your passport and you're in a major city in, like, a friendly country, um, you're probably going to be okay. <laughs> the other thing is my cat had all of her teeth taken out, which is a crazy thing. Yeah. Did you know that's a thing that could happen to cats? I did. I think I knew one of my aunt's cats had that at one time. I did not. And most people think it's an elderly cat thing. My cat just turned three, but she had really bad stomatitis, which is where, like, the cat's immune system basically attacks the teeth <laughs> and like they can take sort of things that suppress the symptoms but having the teeth removed is the only thing that cures it so and it's a major surgery for cats it's much more difficult than it is with humans so yeah i mean you'd never do it for an elective of course but <laughs> for a for an indoor cat it's like it's not the end of the world is it assuming they do they get over the surgery and everything fine the recovery takes about a week and for the first three or four days she was pretty stoned and depressed However, she's totally back to her normal self now. She has always kept her claws in when she plays, which is great. Uh, but she also was a very vigorous biter when she would play. And she would never break your skin, but like, still. Now, her bites are so hilarious. <laughs> They're just velvety soft and adorable. And she's like gnawing on your hand and it's like this is so funny <laughs> like Aww, that's kind of cute it's adorable i'm like this worked out really well because it's a very painful condition for the cat so it's like she's not in pain anymore and now when she plays with me it's just the cutest thing ever so what have you been reading lately i have actually been reading a lot Oh, awesome. Yeah. I think I've been able to read while the baby sleeps and it's it's a game changer. And your older your older son um is okay with you reading around him now or? Uh sometimes. <laughs> okay. Um there's a new show called Rusty Rivets. Not that that matters. If that's on, anything can happen and he would not <laughs> notice. The house could be on fire. <laughs> well, that's handy, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to rot his brain with television. That's the plan. So, of these things you've read, what's the thing that you're most eager to talk about? I'm going to talk about Blindness by Jose Saramago. Blindness came out uh, about 10 years ago. All right. Yeah, he actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Okay. Now I feel bad that I've never heard of him. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's Portuguese. Mm. So, he's not, like, huge. This was a bestseller and, like, a book of the year for a bunch of newspapers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I said, he's Portuguese, but this is the sort of book that could be any city. It's not defined, and it's meant to be universal. Basically, what happens is there is a sudden outbreak of mass blindness. No other symptoms. The, the victims just see white, not black. And it follows the first group who are first afflicted and put into quarantine. It follows them through their quarantine and then their escape from quarantine into the wider world after they've discovered that the entire world has gone blind, or at least their entire country. They, they can't contact outside mm -hmm. because infrastructure has vanished. 
Well, I went through a few things thinking about this book because mm-hmm. um, my first thought in the quarantine was that it was bonkers harsh. Like they were surrounded by armed guards who were going to shoot them when if they tried to escape and they weren't given any like there were no doctors or nurses in there. They were like food was left outside hmm. and cleaning supplies. But of course, they're blind. How do they clean? Um, and it very quickly devolved into, you know, complete squalor and total degradation. And I thought that seems extreme. I mean, we saw with SARS, we saw with Ebola that there are doctors who are loving and giving who will risk their lives. Mm-hmm. But then I realized this book was written about 2000 and it happens that one of these, uh, one of these quarantined is shot. And it was when he was bleeding out and the soldiers were panicking at the sight of the blood. It was like, Oh, duh, this is an AIDS allegory. Mm. (laughs) I was a little slow on the uptake for that one. So I guess my question at that point then is the first groups of people affected is it like random or does it target a certain type of person or there is a contact element to transmission so the first person who goes blind we don't know why but the next person to go blind is his eye doctor who he sees that afternoon and his wife and the patients at the eye doctors okay uh, office and this is the group we mostly stick with um this is especially significant because the eye doctor's wife does not go blind Okay. She pretends to, so she can go into quarantine with her husband. And also, she just sort of assumes she will pretty soon, so she might as well stick together. But at no point does she go blind. She kind of becomes the focal character. Yeah. Yeah, it was a little annoying because she was constantly referred to as the doctor's wife, and she's the main character, but he doesn't give anyone a name. Mm-hmm. He 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 did kind of describes them the first man to go blind the first man's wife the doctor the doctor's wife the girl with the dark glasses the boy with the squint the man with the eye patch he at no points provides any physical descriptors except that one girl was physically attractive hmm. supposedly still is but nobody can see her you know this kind of lack of any sort of descriptive this lack of names, it's its very much tied together because once the group begins to expand, because eventually there's a dozen and then a hundred and then a couple hundred and then everybody, you, can, you have no idea of these people. You can't sort them out in your mind as you're reading the book. Like people may come and go and say things and do things, but you can't, you can't latch on to any other characters beyond our core group. I expect that would give it like a dreamlike quality. It definitely does. Nightmarish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. Uneasy. <laughs> yeah, as the situation devolves, it becomes more frightening. Mm. Someone brings a gun into quarantine. So you've got a blind man with a gun surrounded by other blind people, and he demands food, and he demands, like, he, he, ra- he begins raping women. You know, it's frightening because nobody knows where he is or what he's doing, and he's equally unable to see or do anything. Yeah. Um, it, when he shoots, he just shoots wildly. It also makes for a weird sort of invisibility amongst the characters, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, because they can't see, They know, and they know they can't be seen. It's like nothing is there. So as you get further and further into the book, it, it's like walking through the fog. Yeah. 
I have a couple of questions. I guess this is a minor spoiler, but does the doctor's wife ever actually lose her sight, or does she retain it? Because that would give her a lot of power in that situation. You would think, but it she doesn't. And mm-hmm. she, her sight actually sort of becomes a liability, especially when the man with the gun shows up, because she realizes if people knew what she could do, they would then ask more of her. Yeah. Like, they quickly realize that she's more capable than the others of, like, finding her way back to the room or knowing where things are. They kind of put this down to, like, oh, she's just got, like, a good spatial awareness. Mm -hmm. She's frightened that they're going to make her clean. They're going to make her take care of them. They're going to, like, the man with the gun might try to control her specifically. Mm -hmm. As things get more, you know, Lord of the Flies, more insane this little core group bonds more tightly mm-hmm. um i mean again they're fairly random assortment but they become a family group almost like a tribe once they start ro- roaming the city and she becomes exhausted with caring you know there's only so she's constantly worrying she's constantly looking she's constantly searching she's caring and caring and caring for these people and I mean, they've never really asked her to. She sort of set herself up to do it. And that's certainly something I identify with as a mother of very young children. Because <laughs> you give and you give and you give. And there's no end to the to the need. Yeah. You know, I my, my children need me relentlessly yeah. as this group needed her. And even very sweet children are not necessarily given to gratitude you know? exactly you know and they, and not that this group didn't appreciate her but it became such a functional dynamic of the group mm-hmm. that she just has to keep it going even when she can hardly stand it yeah the the part in the city this is a bit of a spoiler that you know they get out of quarantine but that becomes especially interesting because something that never occurred to me is that if everyone is blind, no one can find their way back home. Yeah. Like, an individual blind person can learn their roots. But if you have no time to get, you know, learn your route that way and no one to help guide you the first couple times, you can't find your way home. You can't find your way back where you were. So besides the fact that everyone is invisible, space is invisible. They're wandering aimlessly in in small little groups or tribes um i guess another question that comes to me is at any point are there people who were blind before this event entering into the story because i imagine they would have an advantage yeah there's one and he kind of teams up with the man with the gun and offers his services to him um he's not much in the story but it definitely uses the skills he has to exploit the others. It's, it's, it does get into a bit, I mentioned Lord of the Flies, the idea that people will resort to savagery. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, when the chips are down sort of a thing. I can remember reading Lord of the Flies in high school and being very weirdly enamored of that sort of lesson because it struck me as correct and it was nice to see it validated in literature, even if it was sort of a horrible thing. <laughs> See, I, I, I'm not arguing that's not true, yeah. but I got to question it long term mm-hmm. because people grew out of savagery. 
if that, you know, if you know what I'm saying. So I'm wondering if the blind blindness, these groups had continued on for, you know, generations, would they not evolve yeah. a more civilized way of living? Some sort of social order would emerge. Absolutely. That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree with you. It's really funny because my, my teenage self, I don't agree with him anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and in part, it's because you can look at lots of extreme situations like this where things don't fall apart in that way, but rather like human compassion sort of like comes through and, and yeah. people band together and take care of each other. Exactly. This kind of makes me wonder if there hadn't been a sighted woman to hold this group together, how things would have gone in the author's view. Because it almost seems like he's saying that it's her that preserves. Yeah. Yeah, as they, as they meet more people who never went into quarantine, they're not much encouraged. Um, they, they run into a woman who's like eating raw rats sort of a thing, you know, like to get by. But there are, they are seeing groups moving together. But as they say, if somebody wanders off from the group, they're lost. And if an individual joins the group, well, they're there now. The individual personalities don't seem to really matter. Well, I believe my understanding of, like, evolutionary history, which I'm always, like, loath to reach to, because it can be used to excuse a lot of really bad Ooh. things that are not necessarily even correct. But I do believe it's the case that in survival situations, it is the human animal's ability to act in a group that like saves like mm -hmm. individuals die groups survive like and i mean we are pack animals mm -hmm. so and it, it is like there are packs of dogs and there are packs of people it, it's made explicit yeah i mean Ooh, do animals lose their sight as well or just humans no okay now the only males we see are dog are dogs mm -hmm. um who are mostly like feeding on corpses lying around that nobody could pick up. But we do have one very compassionate dog. Um, hmm? They call him the dog of tears. <laughs> and he, he comforts the doctor's wife when she's on the street and exhausted and, and, and then goes with her, even though at that moment she has nothing to offer him. It sounds really bleak. It is very bleak. I do not there is a boy mm -hmm. but if if there were much mention of children I don't think I could get through this. Yeah. It it's very it's very dark. It's very bleak. Um uh, but it's also very gripping. And like I said I don't it's it's I don't think I've ever read a book like this. Yeah. What was the author's name again? Jose Saramago. Uh was this your first time reading something by him? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, we're thinking about going to Portugal, so I was like, mm. I don't know anything about Portuguese literature. I have been to Portugal. I would absolutely recommend it. It's delightful and actually very affordable. Um, yeah, that's one of the reasons we're considering. <laughs> Apparently also very pro-children. Like, mm -hmm. they're cool with kids being brats in restaurants. Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, I, for us. <laughs> I always remember taking Chris there and... We got a really lovely hotel that was sort of in an early 20th century style, but a, re a really nice hotel that would cost several hundred dollars a night in most places. And it was like 90 bucks a night or something. And I went to the store around the corner to get a bottle of wine and I could not bring myself to buy 
the two euro bottle of wine. <laughs> so I like splashed out and got the one that was four fifty. It was great. <laughs> and yeah, it's probably like Portuguese wines, probably, mm-hmm, right? which is fantastic. It's beautiful. The weather's great. The people are really friendly. It's very safe. Uh, it's everything. I love it. You get none of that in this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really funny because when I was reading up about this, I've been twice and I really like I really like Portugal. I have kind of a thing for it. Mm-hmm. And you sort of read your Lonely Planet guides and your what else's and they're like, it's Southern Europe, but don't think sort of hot-blooded Spaniards and passionate Italians. It's like the Portuguese are a very serious, kind of sad, depressed people. Yeah. <laughs> so. First of all, hot-blooded Spaniards. <laughs> well, you know, the stereotypes, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> I'm sure people in Spain and Italy have the full range of human emotions just like the rest of us. But n- no, like apparently the Portuguese culture is quite sort of serious and and dark sometimes yeah like i said this is my only my first foray into portuguese literature and it is certainly very dark but not without some hope Mm -hmm. i guess that you know to keep you going it's interesting because the doctor's wife quite a lot of times hopes she will go blind yeah because then she won't have to see oh right because you bet all these horrors, the dead bodies that the dogs are feasting on and everything. Exactly. Most of the blind people aren't aware of that. Mm-hmm. And they're not aware, like, they know they're, like, the the hospital they're in, it's very quickly, like, just covered in shit, covered in, you mm-hmm. know, human effluvia. Yeah. You know, obviously, people are aware of it. They can't find the bathrooms. They can't, and they know they're walking and they can smell it, but she can see it. And she can see her husband who she not only loves but very much respects she can see him unable to clean himself you know this sort of thing she can see his humiliation does humiliation exist without sight in this context you know what i mean i guess Um, because nobody else can see what you're going through right right but she can if she couldn't what he might not have been as humiliated in that moment. I I can't think of much else to ask you about it. It does sound fascinating. It does not sound like a light summer read, but it does sound like you'd recommend it. Oh, definitely. Definitely very good. And like I said, my my specific triggers are terrible things happening to children, which Mm -hmm. in this world would definitely be happening, but that's not really shown. Yeah. I want to say something that drove me crazy, and I don't know if this is the writer, because it is a translation. The dialogue is not, there's no paragraph breaks or quotation marks for the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, it couldn't be a stylistic choice, but it also got super confusing. Yes. I wonder if that's on purpose. It might be. It's meant to be disorienting. Yeah, because the book is disorienting, but it's also like, okay, what is happening? (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's like paragraph breaks. (laughs) How do you feel about that in general? Because my book as well doesn't use quotation marks, although they do do a line break when the speaker switches. But if there's three people speaking, it's just line break, line break, line break, line break, and there's no speech tags to tell you who's who, and it can get hard to follow. Yeah, honestly, I find it a little pretentious. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like, oh, look how clever I am. I don't need grammar. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just bitchy like that, but <laughs> I find it's really funny. I used to have an impeccable grasp of grammar, 
And I've had such a relaxed online writing style, which is very light on punctuation, that I am no longer 100% confident about my commas. <laughs> and I start using M dashes when I'm not sure. <laughs> I've always been very bad at commas. I used to be terrible. I used to be like, well, I just know where the commas go because I read so much. Why don't you know? And now I'm like, whoa, you snot-nosed brat. I remember one time um, a professor was telling me there shouldn't be a comma there. And I was like, but I paused in my writing. Yes, which is what I was originally for. I'm going to take a little <laughs> breath here, right? Yeah, it's like, no, this is a pause intellectually. <laughs> <laughs> I've just gone full Emily Dickinson. I'm just dash, dash, dash. <laughs> I have to take a second and remove my cat from the desk. Chris has gone out, and I guess she's lonely. <laughs> but she's she's in a very in, inconvenient spot. Just one moment. Baskerville, honey, this is not a good spot for you to be in. Better. Oh, no! You can't take my desk chair. <laughs> She's crafty. As soon as I stood up, she got out of there and got got where I had been sitting. Hmm. Yeah, remember when it. you weren't sure about getting a cat? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the funny thing is, technically, she's my cat. Like... I, I was the one, we, we moved into the house, and I was like, oh, I guess now that we have a house, we're going to be getting a cat. And Chris was like, oh, not really. And I was like, I guess now that we have a house, we're going to be getting a cat. <laughs> I was like, oh, you want to get a cat, is what you're trying to say. Yeah, because I remember before you moved in, you weren't sure about having mm-hmm. a cat. I, I love cats, but I was afraid that she would interrupt my sleep. She probably does. No, she interrupts Chris's sleep. <laughs> Shall we talk about my book, I guess? Yes, or? please. All right. So I read Small Game Hunting at the Local Coward Gun Club by Megan Gale Close. I wondered if this would be like the book for you this month. Yeah. I, I finished it actually yesterday because I wanted to talk about it so much. It took me a while to finish for a couple of reasons. Um, it was very good. I liked it pretty much from go. However... It spends okay, so the the narrative bounces back and forth between a cast of about a half dozen characters and well, probably more like eight. And several of them are real shitheads. <laughs> like they're clueless, cowardly, straight white men who have never done a moment of self-reflection in their life. And it is absolutely a tribute to Megan Cole's talent that she can inhabit them so well. And it's kind of satisfying in small doses because you're like, yeah, this guy's just terrible. What a homophobic, misogynistic jerk he is. But there was a section where we were bouncing back and forth between a bunch of those, and I was just I can't, I can't take any more. It's wearing me down. Yeah. <laughs> which I guess is the experience of being a woman in a patriarchy, <laughs> but, <laughs> which is probably one of the points. Yeah, but it comes to a... a- I know I haven't read this, uh, but it, so reading that, it's kind of like, yeah, you get it, but it's like, ugh, it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It was so good, though. And the other thing is, so the book takes place over the course of one day, Valentine's Day in St. John's. So, of oh. course, the weather is the worst. Mm-hmm. There's a blizzard. 
almost everything in town is shut down, but there is one sort of hipster bistro downtown that is open for business. It's called the Hazel. And the cast of characters basically are either people who work there or who own it or who are dining there or who pass through there in some way. This restaurant is basically the site through which all these characters are interwoven. It's really clever and well done. Sorry to interrupt, but I have to ask, do you think it's based on any real restaurant? Oh, absolutely. I can 100% imagine this. Do you know which one? I don't know. I don't know St. John's well enough to figure it out. I don't think it's Mallard Cottage. <laughs> Only, And I don't think it's Raymond's. I only say those two things because the one of the very first scenes, um, uh, a one of the characters who is, mm-hmm, I don't know how to describe her. She's not homeless, but she's in really a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, is waiting for her friend, who is the hostess there, to arrive for a shift so she can go in and warm up her feet and get some food because she gets fed there for free, and she's waiting underneath the mural of a sad boy who drowned many years ago. And I'm like, I know where that is. So it's on Duckworth street. Uh, but I don't know, like, obviously it's, I, I, my suspicion is that it is a fictional amalgamation of many different things, but it is absolutely this sort of restaurant that St. John's had a lot of four or five years ago and has fewer of now that things have turned down a little bit. Yeah. And this is absolutely set after that downturn. A lot of people have been laid off. Mm. A lot of people who had stupid money and bought stupid trucks and did a lot of cocaine are now out of work. <laughs> That's in this book. A lot of the fancy restaurants that had opened are gone. Mm-hmm. This restaurant is not going to be staying above, keeping its head above water much longer. Uh, <laughs> I don't think we should do on-air speculation. Because <laughs> let me tell you, it would be... Um, libelous because <laughs> the the head chef is a very charismatic man. Mm-hmm. His wife is um, a rich girl from Circular Road, and so her family basically keeps it afloat financially. Oh, I know what restaurant this is. Okay, well, Megan <laughs> Coles is a set of cojones <laughs> because we get a lot. He is fucking the hostess, and. Um, she is desperately in love with him, but knows he will never leave his wife. He's mm-hmm. told her that, but he continues to ruin her. Let me let me put my words together here. You know how I said there are lots of, like, shitheads? Mm-hmm. He is next level because he's very charismatic and very well-spoken and very educated and talented and artistic and seems like a really nice guy, whereas the rest are a bunch of skeets. But he's probably the worst of them all because he grooms the women around him to suit his needs in really okay. subtle and manipulative ways. I don't know if this is true of the restaurant I'm thinking of. <laughs> like I say, we should probably shouldn't speculate because it would be libelous. Sorry, I'm into my gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> it's so well done, though. This is a very St. John's book, but... I don't think anyone who's not from here who reads it would ever put St. John's on their tourist destination list. The place is hard. It wrecks people. It is cruel. It is an amazing portrait 
of the dark side of Newfoundland. Most of the characters are actually from the Bay, which means outside of St. John's. Several from the Northern Peninsula. There's one gay character who's from Central Newfoundland who's one of the best gay characters I've ever come across in contemporary literature, which is amazing because Megan Coles is not a gay man as far as I know. <laughs> this is the first time I ever saw poppers used like in a, in a book and used correctly. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. oh, this is Amel Nitrate. She's done her research. She has some gay <laughs> friends who are willing to tell her. <laughs> amazing. I mean, February in St. John's is so miserable. February in St. John's is so miserable. Um, yeah. There's a line in a pathological lover's song. Mm-hmm. can't remember which one, but it describes February as the Wednesday of the year. <laughs> so because it's set at a restaurant, the book is divided into three sections, prep, lunch, and dinner. And I thought it was very clever when I was done uh, reading it because prep is really just setting up the characters. You're learning about the characters and their situation and their background. They aren't really interacting in very meaningful ways just yet. And for the first 70 or 80 pages, I almost wondered, is this going to be like every section is a new person before like finally someone came back who we already met? And then lunch, things get kind of serious. And then dinner, it's like everything explodes and the book becomes very violent very visceral. There is, I should say, trigger warning, content warning. There is a really brutal rape scene about two thirds of the way through. Really hard to read, but it is absolutely necessary um, because it seems to me, having finished it now, that this book is trying to do a lot of things. But the thing I would say it's primarily trying to do is just to rip up the floorboards of Newfoundland culture and show the misogyny that lies underneath and every ugly detail of it. It is a very discomforting and difficult book, but it is so powerful. And so I think necessary for, uh, I was going to say necessary for people to read, but I don't think I quite mean that you know this and I know this and most of our friends know this. We don't necessarily need to be told the lessons that this book is teaching. But yet, it felt weirdly satisfying to see someone put them together in Mm. such a powerful and intelligent way, where you can be like, yes, yes, Newfoundland is like that. Um, If this poor girl who had been raped, like, went forward with her story, yeah, all of the, like, bingo nans would be like, uh, no, like, that, that man's a nice man, and that can't be true. And you were wearing a pair of red tights. So you were asking for it and whatever you can. Yeah. It's a sort of thing. I don't know. You know, definitely in Newfoundland Mm -hmm. that the people who should most read it are never going to read it. Mm -hmm. There is a Venn diagram here. The shitheads in their giant trucks doing Coke in the bathroom downtown who have never read a book in their lives. Sure as hell aren't going to read this one. (laughs) And they are kind of, in this book, almost these unthinking zombies of, like, misogyny. (laughs) Which they don't, like, and because you spend so much time in your head, you get their thought processes. And they don't understand why the women in their lives are, uh, like, frustrated or fed up with them. And they think it's just because they're on the rag. And they think that men who are not like this are all queer. Mm -hmm. And, like, of course they do. But then there are other people like the chef at the restaurant 
and others like that who do read books and who might read this one. And I wonder if they would see themselves in this and feel uncomfortable. And I wonder about myself. Like, I am a white man. I'm gay. I mostly saw myself in the gay character, although he is messed up in a way that I thankfully never have been because uh, my friends and my family have been more supportive than his were. But there there before the grace of God go I. And, you know, so I exempt myself. I can't be gross like this because I'm gay. Maybe I can be, though, you know? Oh, the gay men are not exempt from misogyny. I mean, you are. <laughs> and I know you're not misogynist, is what I mean. No one is perfect. I'm sure I have said and done some misogynist things in my life. The point is to try and be aware of them and get better. Yeah. But, um, I, and I think it's worth pointing out to anyone who's not from St. John's, that St. John's does have a very specific truck culture. Mm-hmm. So when we say dudes with trucks, we don't mean... People who use trucks for work or whatever yeah, like that. My These father are like, has a truck that he goes up to the beach to collect driftwood and buckets of kelp, and this is yeah, fine. We're talking about men who wear suits and drive trucks. Yeah, my uh, my boss at the government institution I used to work in used to wear a suit to his, you know, Harborview corner office downtown and drive a truck through downtown to do it. Yeah, downtown, which has very narrow winding streets. Yeah, the biggest truck available. Yep, yep. And he was absolutely a misogynist, so there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the small game of the title, I think, are the women, and the local cowards with their guns are the straight men, because they are cowardly. They are cowardly, which was an incredible thing to realize as I'm reading this. They know they're rapists. They know they're abusers. They know that they are ruining the women around them for their own benefit and that they will get away with it because society always protects the privileged and they are the privileged. But they don't have the courage to look this in the face and do anything about it. I'm going to read a little bit. So this is, um, Iris is the hostess who is sleeping with the chef and she comes to the table. The mayor of St. John's is there with some other people. It's like a business, business over lunch kind of a deal. The mayor is boasting to Iris that his friend is the head of Heritage NL, though she hears how his tidy vowels betray him. Paisley's shirt originated in southern Ontario, in some civilized-sized town named for some other civilized place, as is the way everywhere in the New World. This attribute he shares with his co-workers, that and a shared preoccupation with community-building communities that were built many decades ago by families who still live in them. Which is, when I read that line, my, <laughs> I just had to sit back in my chair and like go like, woof, wow. The, the preoccupation with community building, communities that were built many decades ago by families who still live in them. Oh, my God. And so it goes on to the next page. And Iris wants to implode and feels she will if faced for the rest of living with the same oversimplified rhetoric, day in and day out and night on and night off. Perhaps Iris could have had some kind of happiness if she hadn't read all those books while her mom was at work. All those books opened her up, and now she here she stands, opened. Why is rural Newfoundland, insert anything here? The answer is poverty. Why is the rural Newfoundlander, insert anything here? Still poverty. Why is the rural Newfoundlander, insert anything here? Poverty, 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 fuck! (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> it's so amazing. Oh, like the conversation turns to winter trawling, which Paisley shirt suggests they should reinstate now the stocks are stabilizing. And Iris says without warning that winter fishing causes severe mental illness in fishing communities along the coast. The table falls silent and stares when Iris utters the word suicide because it is more dangerous than summer fishing, which is fucking dangerous enough. Uh, it's such a book. So here's my question, mm -hmm. because this book is actually sitting on my coffee table right yeah. now. It might hold, came in at the library. Knowing that I'm in a kind of a delicate emotional state right mm -hmm. now, should I read this? This is something I thought about, because I mentioned this in our last episode, just because I knew this book by reputation, and a lot of my friends back home were wild about it. And so I bought it. You got it off hold uh, at the library. I didn't know actually anything about what it was like when we had that conversation. As I was reading it, the further along I got in it, the more I thought, I'm not sure this is right for Emily right now. So, um, Fair enough. I, I don't want to give away the ending. It feels like, with about 20 pages to go, that things might get better. And then they get so worse. Like, the ending took the breath out of me. Like, it was so hard, those last 10 or 15 pages. So, I... <laughs> <laughs> so maybe at a different stage of my life. Yes, you absolutely should read this when you feel strong and up to it. Um, I can promise you that no children come to harm. Women come oh, to harm. Cool. Gay men come to harm. Straight men come to harm because of their own stupidity. <laughs> like, it is a great example of how, like, um, criticizing misogyny and being a feminist is not being against men because it hurts men in terrible ways, too. Like, this system benefits men but at a terrible cost to their like emotional and physical well-being um mm -hmm. that's such a good way to put it like mm -hmm. the benefit because that's something that's hard to explain to people who who aren't getting that feminism is for men it's like there is benefit to a misogynistic system but at great cost mm -hmm. yep. exactly yeah so i said to someone on twitter that the very very first page of the novel there is just two short sentences in the middle of it, and there's Iveress's white blank space. And it says, this might hurt a little. Be brave. And she is not kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a painful, hard book to read, and it is so good. I mean those as praise. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm very glad I read it. Um, I would absolutely recommend it to people who, who think they can handle what is a really hard, rough experience. That's, that's what I've been reading. It's the only thing I read because uh, it is about 420 pages. I find it difficult to concentrate for extended periods. I did devour the last 150 pages because in that third section, things just ratchet up. Every piece of plot and character that has been put in place becomes activated and it all grinds together and i couldn't put it down for the last section see that's the sweet spot isn't it like mm -hmm. when you kind of you're reading it's fine you're enjoying yourself and then all of a sudden it's like i can't do anything else yeah like i'm literally stirring the pot for dinner because i have to <laughs> dinner but i have the book in the other hand which happened yesterday <laughs> i have an uh, apple watch and it 
tracks my sleep and it thinks I've gone to sleep when I am very still and my heart rate slows down. And it thought I had gone to sleep because I hadn't moved. (laughs) So I was reading. I'm surprised my heart rate hadn't gone up because there is a lot going on here. But uh, it thought I had gone to sleep for about 15 minutes. I definitely had it. I definitely was very awake. Yeah, I've been lucky. I've, like I said, I've read a few a few books. I read a parenting book, which I I, I know I talked about reading parenting books mm-hmm. with you off mic, but I can't do it because I would just rant all the time. <laughs> and I read a romance. Oh, do you think, which was it? Do you think when this is all said and done, you might write a parenting book? Because if they're all bad, there's a there's a market. I don't think there is a good parenting book. I don't like. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> Fair enough. I think we should all just give up send our children out to live in the woods um <laughs> is that the gin and tonic talking <laughs> maybe a little but i i read a romance it was called the kiss quotient and it was interesting because it featured an autistic protagonist okay a first for me yeah she's um neurologically atypical and she um feels pressure from her family to you know, get married, have babies. So she actually hires a gorgeous prostitute to teach her how to have sex and be a girlfriend. Male prostitute. It's a heterosexual mm, romance. Interesting. And it's it's surprisingly good. Mm-hmm. I don't read a lot mm-hmm. of romance, but I really liked it. Um, just because it was so different and so interesting. Yeah, let's say that's that's a setup that I don't think those of us who only have a passing familiarity with like your typical sort of Harlequins would expect. Yeah, I can, I'm not experienced enough in the genre to say how common this sort of thing is, but I don't think it is very because I I saw a lot about this book being people being like, oh my god, a a, a neurologically atypical female protagonist mm-hmm. and it's not like a pity case like he genuinely likes her f- for her like spoiler they live happily ever after well it's a romance <laughs> you want that <laughs> yeah um i am now thinking about convenience store women and more generally how oftentimes in my experience characters who are probably on the autism spectrum but it's never said in text you sort of have to be like oh this person doesn't seem um neurologically typical I I guess they they might be autistic or they might have Asperger's or they're on the spectrum somehow but the book leaves it up in the air it's always just sort of hinted at yeah and this is very specific it's like I am autistic these are the ways my autism manifests yeah she's like she doesn't like rough clothing she doesn't like certain smells she gets overwhelmed in crowds it also makes her exceptionally good at her job of econometrics which is not something i'd even heard of before (laughs) but basically um her job and this is interesting too because she's she's a super wealthy powerful person is she um analyzes consumer data and comes up with the algorithms that recommend products to you (laughs) cool (laughs) yeah it like i said it's i mean it's it's very Mm romancy um but it also just has all these really cool interesting elements to it that make it very different it's very different from anything i read yeah before so that's that sounds 
Not at all what I would have expected from a romance novel. I know. Yeah. So the kiss quotient, I don't have the author in front of me. That's my, uh, my summer beach read, I think, for the year. I need to figure out what I'm reading next. Um, a number of, this is such a strange thing to say. I guess this is what comes of having had a former life in a graduate English program that has a fairly prestigious creative writing um, aspect. Several friends of mine have books coming out, <laughs> including people who, like, if a friend has a book coming out, it's very polite to buy it. Um, I don't always get around to reading it. Uh, but at least one of them is a woman who, uh, I, guess I should say a friend, although it's been a few years since we've spoken, but we got on very well back then, and I, I miss her. I, she doesn't live in Toronto anymore, I don't think. Um, anyways, we were in a creative writing group together, and her stories were always just jaw-droppingly good. So I'm really looking forward to her first short story collection, which is coming out later this year. So if it's out this summer, I'm going to grab it. <laughs> It's, I find it really hard to read things my friends have written. Oh, yeah? I feel like I'm very aware while I'm reading. Like, I'm, I'm watching my own reactions. Oh, that that's something sense? that we should bring up, because you recently read something I wrote. <laughs> yes, actually, I did want to bring that up before the end, because you wrote a spectacular essay. Thank you. Gut-wrenching. I cried. Oh, well, thank you. I cried a few hours later when I thought about it again. Well... It sounds weird to say good, but <laughs> like you want people to have an emotional reaction to the things you write. So yeah, I, I've started a Medium account where I'm putting pieces of writing that I, I don't know where I would submit them. So they've just been sitting around. Um, that one I wrote a couple of months back and I just was like, I don't know where I would even try to have this published. So that's where it is now. Um, it's the sort of thing that might run in the new yorker but you can't just like the new yorker <laughs> <laughs> yeah cold submissions to the new yorker i'm not sure uh what you know who knows like buying a lottery ticket might but yeah, something somewhere with like long form personal essays yeah I yeah exactly and that's mostly what i've been writing um i'm trying to expand beyond my own life experiences but it's easy easiest enough to write about your own experiences and thoughts so is it do you, is it okay with you if we talk about the essay itself? Absolutely, hundred okay. percent. I, I would, I would love if readers wanted to go uh, read it. There'll be a link in the show notes. Um, it's called "At the Back of the Closet." It's on Medium. Um, you should absolutely go read it. It would make me happy if you did. So we can absolutely talk about it. Yeah, sure. Because I have to ask, mm -hmm. did your mom read it? <sighs> That's the thing. So basically. The essay is a telling of my first boyfriend that I had when I was 18 and how the aftermath of that um, and how it sort of fell apart kind of drove me back into the closet for a number of years. And it's sort of a story about shame and not dealing with things or dealing with things poorly, in part because we're not trained how to have difficult conversations and we're not trained to sort of do that deep emotional introspection through which self-knowledge comes. So when I was 18, 19 years old, I didn't have the tools to deal with the situation I found myself in. Um, I frame it, I started off by talking about how I came out to my mother and it didn't go so well. And I almost thought I shouldn't put that in. So had you ever discussed it since? 
Like, I know your mom's okay with you being gay now, but, like, have you ever talked about that conversation? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, like I say, she she danced joyfully at my gay marriage a decade later. So, <laughs> um, no, we haven't talked about that. Um, and I don't know that we ever will, in part because it is better now. And there was no malice at any point. No. It was just a situation that neither of us was equipped to handle. Um, we love each other. We have a very good relationship. Um, we talk about lots of things now. Chris, my husband, has sort of taught me what it's like to talk about your feelings <laughs> instead of just repress them. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to import that skill with the rest of the family, but mm, it's just not the culture that we are from, you know? So, yeah, it's difficult. That was one thing that struck me very much mm -hmm. as a mother. Like, there there were a few things, but this one first, because your mom's a great mom. Mm -hmm. She's wonderful. She loves you a lot. She shows up. She does all the stuff. But in a moment she wasn't prepared for, mm -hmm. she failed you. Yeah. She failed you in a very profound way. And uh, I'm tearing up thinking about it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I know what I'll say if my kids come out as gay or whatever, but mm. what if there's something else I'm not even thinking about? You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure your mother would never, ever hurt you mm -hmm. in a conscious way. No, I agree. So it's, it's, it's horrifying to think that she did accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a couple of things I would say to that. And one is that I don't think any parent gets it right all of the time. Like every parent is going to fail. Like, and that's just the way it is. And you do the best you can with the tools that you've been given. And like my mom did her very best and she did a very, very good job. And you are doing your best. And I think you're doing a very good job. The other thing is something that I really hold to be true in general. When you love someone, you give them the opportunity to hurt you. Mm. And that is fine. That is not a reason to not love someone. But you accept that the a lot of the hurts you're going to feel throughout life are going to come from people you love. And they're not necessarily going to mean it. In fact, hopefully, very rarely will they mean it. But loving someone means that you leave yourself open to hurt and that will happen. So <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's fair. It doesn't swage my fear, but mm. and probably nothing will. <laughs> you will, you will do your best. Yeah. And... I also check my baby to make sure he's breathing several times a night. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how parents do it. I would be such a bundle of anxiety. <laughs> yeah, a good, good friend of ours, her daughter, um, uh, oh Lord, just turned five fell off the monkey bars and broke both of her wrists and i'm like she'll be fine she's in good spirit she's got to wear splints for four weeks but like on both hands <laughs> like but like every time i see a kid on like um a playground i'm like oh my god if like <laughs> i almost have like a panic attack yeah our plans for tomorrow just changed <laughs> <laughs> but like kids are like made of rubber 99 percent of the time they like plonk and they like yeah. they ball for a minute and then they're fine right it's, like, it's amazing what my older son like 
does to himself. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I was a kid, I used to love running down the stairs to the basement, running down the first three or four stairs, and then jumping onto the landing for the last six or seven stairs. Mm -hmm. My knees cringe at the memory. (laughs) I could have badly hurt myself. I didn't care. (laughs) But to get back to your essay, the Mm -hmm. other thing is that, of course, I knew you during this time. I don't think we were super good friends, but I knew you. I saw you regularly. Our friendship was growing. We had a couple of classes together. We shared a friend group. Yeah, we were chatting. And so when I went into this essay, thinking I was going to know roughly how it was going to go, I did not. Yeah. Um, Because I knew you broke up. I knew there was drama. I knew about the nickname. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was just like normal teenage boyfriend boyfriend drama you know like yeah. similar like fights that i would have had with whoever i was dating at the time i i had no idea what actually happened yeah well i mean i was mortified so i wasn't like keen yeah. to tell people <laughs> like, of course yeah and i just i guess i just felt bad personally yeah. <laughs> for writing off what you'd been through is like oh yeah just you know they were teenagers well to your credit, um, I have always been the sort of kid and person who, like, ha- tries to hide how hurt I might be. Like, if I fell off my bike when I was nine, I would immediately, like, jump back up and be like, I'm okay, even if I was, like, blood gushing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, like, I've always tried to perform wellness. I mean, I'm the one who, like, my appendix ruptured and I almost died because they didn't want to <laughs> complain about it. Like <laughs> So, it's not a good trait. It's not yeah. something I think people should try and emulate. It's something I, I should try and get over. Like, if you're if you're suffering and you're feeling pain, you should let your friends know about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have been bare, but there for you then. But. You were, though. In the years that followed, I needed my friends, and you were there. Oh, thank so, you. Yeah. And to take it away from the personal, because I've made this discussion of your writing very personal to me. Well, it's, a, it's, it's a personal essay, but go on. I just have to say it's so vulnerable and so beautifully written. I have to like I've read your writing before and I said I said earlier I don't like to read friends writing because I become very aware that I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. This was not the case for this essay. I was completely absorbed. Mm. Um I was Thinking of you, you know, as the Michael I know, when I know that you're six feet tall and you have blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> but I almost felt like I was inside your mind hmm. rather than reading something you'd written, if that makes sense. I could see it. Yeah, that's really high praise. Thank you. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. That's what I was going for. Like, writing has always been a thing that people told me I was good at and that I found satisfying and it's something that i haven't done as much of in the last four or five years and it's like it's time for me to get back to it so i'm trying to have something to put up there every week i've had about four or five things in draft and i'm trying to create new things as we go along so we'll see how long it takes before the cupboard runs bare (laughs) well i i guess that's about all yeah, I think one of the babies woke up. So, uh, well. probably. I call them both babies when they're asleep because they're cute when they're asleep. <laughs> yes, they are. Even though one's a toddler. Well, he's three toddlers still. I I don't know. He's a preschooler at this point. I don't know. 
he's he's really sweet when he's unconscious. <laughs> I love what he gets. Oh, he's I'm, no, it's adorable. I I really like when you post on social media with their with their pictures and whatnot. So yeah, he went to his first book reading, author mm-hmm. meet and greet. Yeah, I saw that the book got signed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Jenny Higgins. I don't have the name of the book, but you're in ABCs of Amazing Women in Newfoundland History. So that's available. It's a bit advanced for for Eddie. Um, but if you do have a three-year-old you need a book for, The Book with No Pictures by oh, yeah? DJ Novak is amazing. <laughs> I read it for 45 minutes straight the other day. <laughs> I don't know how, lo- how many times that is, but it's about a three or four minute read. <laughs> <laughs> a good dozen or more times. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, he's on his way to becoming a little reader. <laughs> I, well, you know, it's it's always satisfying. I'm kind of I'm looking forward to when he's a little bit older and I can start like when we come to visit, like bringing bringing gifts of books. I know mean, I'm sort of looking forward to being like, here's a mixed up files of Ms. Basil E. Frankweiler and whatnot. So I'm sure they'll come <laughs> uh, if he ever runs away to the rooms and spends a week <laughs> hiding there. It'll be my fault. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful all right uh it's wonderful to catch up with you you too all right we'll do this again in a couple of weeks yeah very okay. good bye bye okay, well listeners it seems both emily and myself forgot we were recording a podcast because we went and ended our conversation as if we were just two old friends catching up i hope you didn't feel left out we really appreciate you listening into our chat, and we hope you'll enjoy the books we recommend if you feel motivated to go check them out. Dear Reader is the name of this podcast, and it's hosted by the lovely Megaphonic Podcast Network. There's a Patreon where you can support the production of this show and others at patreon.com megaphonic, like a megaphone. You can also leave reviews on the iTunes store. That really helps new people to discover our podcast and rescues us from being lost adrift in the vast featureless sea of the internet. You can chat with us on Twitter at DearReaderFM. We love hearing from listeners. Feedback is the greatest encouragement. Thanks for listening, and until next time.